welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only. Do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Scott Morrison. Scott is a board-certified physical therapist who specializes in high performance and sports medicine. He has experience working and consulting across elite sport and tactical communities and currently works within special operations. Scott serves as the chair of the AASPT Performance Enhancement and is pursuing a PhD under Franco Impelazari, a former guest on the show. I invited Scott on the podcast to talk about the off-sighted envelope of function paradigm introduced by Scott Dye in the 1990s. Scott is an expert communicator in this area, and I'm sure you'll get a lot from this episode. I certainly did. Just a quick heads up, my audio is poor during the conversation on reflection I realized my microphone was back to front during the recording. A rookie error, I know, and I do apologize for this. And I swear to you, it will not happen in the future. Luckily, Scott's audio is nice and crisp. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the conversation and for your information, for the first time in two years, I'm running my one day shoulder workshop in Sydney and Melbourne in May and June, 2022. Tickets are limited to 30 participants for each event. The course offers a complete distillation of the evidence base for shoulder pain management, equipping you with up-to-date knowledge, techniques, and clinical reasoning skills that are clinically actionable. If this is something you are interested in, check the show notes for more information. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Scott Morrison. We are live today with a very special guest all the way over in the United States of America from the great state of Florida, I believe. We have Scott Morrison joining us. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks for having me, Jared. I don't so, know how Scott, special it is when you say that to every guest, right? I know, I know. It's very true, actually. I've got to stop doing that. I've got to be a little bit more... Uh, I've got Nuanced. to criticize people from the get-go, yeah. Um, so, Scott, firstly... You have the exact same name as our prime minister here in Australia. So I want to, I want to, just, I want to just put that on record. Our prime minister is unpopular at the moment, to say the least. So everybody listening in Australia, do not tar this version of Scott Morrison with the same brush. All right. Do you have anything to say for yourself, Scott? Do you know much about our prime minister? Well, I've become very educated over the years because I get a lot of private messages and uh, tweets and uh, stuff across social media intended for your prime minister. The first thing I usually point out is that I spell my name correctly. He uses two T's, so obviously there's some insecurities going on there. But yeah, no, I, I get multiple, especially anytime he does something, I find out all about it because I get a random collection of private messages and tweets telling me uh, various things. So Beyond the fact that he spells his name correct incorrectly, um, yeah, not much, not much else in common. I think you're not us. an expert on Australian politics, mate. I, I'm not an expert on any politics. I don't think anyone really is. So, agree. <laughs> People it's, just uh, what was it? 
Douglas Adams, I think, said anyone capable of getting themselves elected by that fact is unqualified for the position that they get elected to. So I kind of go by that. Respect. No, it's a, I I would second that. That is a uh, that's a very that's a that's a nice quote. Actually, I might might integrate that into my into my dinner time uh, politics talk. So we're going to move away from politics, Scott. Thankfully, and. Firstly, I just want you to introduce yourself to the audience. Most people will be familiar with, with you and your work, but just give us a snapshot into who you are, what you do, and what a normal week looks like for you at the moment. Yeah, so um, background is, well, undergrad was exercise science, and then uh, I tell people I started off early 2000s paying my bills um, through exercise strength and conditioning, and then relatively rapidly realized I wasn't going to pay many bills with that, so ended up doing PT school, so finished up my uh, doctorate in physical therapy a couple uh, years after uh, undergrad, and since then have worked in a couple different areas, both sports as well as outpatient, uh, more sports-type clinics. Interests are yeah, pretty much exercise prescription, rehabilitation processes, decision-making around that, and my... Um, current work is within the tactical community. So that's what a daily life for me is getting to work with people who perform at a very high level with uh, slightly different uh, risks and outcomes than my prior background in sports. Oh, awesome. And that's that's kind of why I like a lot of your stuff. And I'm sure a lot of people do too, because it's well-rounded and it's human, like high performance and human performance is such an interesting uh, topic. And I think it's, um, it kind of gets lost a little bit now, I think, in on Twitter and like the the nuanced discussions about high performance. It all just comes back to these sort of one dimensional takes of performance, and I, people, in my opinion, lose sight of the macro of it all. And that's kind of why I've been drawn to some of your work uh, in the past. So you don't you don't have to respond to that, but that's something that that I've been. That's sort of how you've come on my radar. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I would agree that uh, we lose sight, but then also I think sometimes the macro becomes uh excuse and a cover all for not understanding some of the micro. So it's, you have to be able to zoom in and out and there has to be like your models have to scale, I think is really what it comes down to. Well, we'll get into talk of the models a little bit later, but I want to ask you, Scott, this is the most important question of today. What book are you reading right now? And give me a TV show that you are, or movie. I watch movies over like four nights now because I've got like a 35-minute attention span. So what book are you reading right now? <laughs> or what TV show are you watching? So answering what book um, is always impossible because I always have multiple books going. But I can tell you some of the ones that I'm currently enjoying. Um, uh, this one, actually, Historical and Conceptual Foundations of Measurement in the Human Sciences has been really fascinating. It's kind of a, both a educational textbook, but also a historical look at kind of where measurement has come from, the history of measurement, and kind of giving some perspective to the different approaches and models that we use. So that's been one of the books that I would say has been uh, open more frequently than some of the others that maybe I should uh, open more. And then for the contrast, if it's not that, it's usually some science fiction or uh, trash fantasy type, like I'll go down web novels where they're 
not even edited and just some random person somewhere wrote it and someone sent it to me and I'll sit there and read that. So it's a very kind of split between those. As far as TV, I don't really watch that much, much like you attention span is a little bit harder. Uh, but probably Rick and Morty is the current uh, favorite. So nice. Yeah, I'm not, I can't convince my wife to watch Rick and Morty at this stage. So it has to be like an individual one. And I don't, don't have individual time at this point, but it has been on the list. It's recommended almost universally by my friends and colleagues. So, yeah. All right. We'll get, we'll put it on the list. All right, Scott. So the good stuff, good stuff is done. Now we've got to get into the, the nitty gritty of the science of, and today I want to talk about the, envelope of function and it's a term that it's probably been around for let's say 20 years maybe a little bit more let's say the mid 90s um and i'll get you to do a bit of a history on it but i i honestly hadn't heard of it until i i think i heard eric mira talking about it maybe i don't know early 2010s or something like that so it kind of was under the radar there for a little while for me and i feel like i'm not you know i'm 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 kind of not behind too much when it comes to um, sports science and physiotherapy and and all these kind of, of topics. So, and I do talk to a lot of students about it, and it's certainly nothing that people are being taught at university still, almost 20 years later. And it, it's fascinating to me because I think you'll you'll support me in this assertion, possibly a controversial assertion, in that it is a really neat framework on how to approach a lot of things in musculoskeletal healthcare. So, so Scott, give me your interpretation of the envelope of function. What is it? What does it tell us? Is it a model? Is it a framework? Is it a theory? How does it fit into contemporary practice? Oh, that's a lot. Um, I think it's uh, like, I've, I've seen a lot of different interpretations of it. I think the, if I remember correctly, Dye wrote about this. So uh, Dr. Scott Dye is the one who sort of proposed or formalized this. I'm not saying that it wasn't something discussed previously, but kind of he's the one that uh, formalized it. And if memory serves, his first mention of it was prior to the physical stress theory paper, which is somewhat similar um, and, you know, uh, bounces off. So the two are both, you know, reads that anybody should do. Uh, if you're in, if you work within something where you are applying stressors to a human uh, and looking for adaptation over time, it's probably a, a good model to understand. I view it more as a model because like all models, um, it's supposed, it's not supposed to explain everything, but it's supposed to orient you rapidly to key concepts. And that's kind of how I view it. I'm sure there's others who have uh, taken it other ways, but yeah. So uh, Dr. Scott Dye wrote this up in the framework of patellofemoral pain. And basically what you have is a y-axis that is looking at the intensity and an x-axis that's looking at duration or frequency. So I think in his classic one, it's uh, like jumping out of a high uh, two-story window um, would be a one-off event that would potentially be problematic for you or um, all the way. So that would be high and to the left on the chart right along the y-axis and then maybe running a 50 mile or 50 kilometer type race if you're not trained for that might be something that's pretty far out. Low intensity each step, but uh, much, much higher duration. 
And so what he did is drew a theoretical line um, that sort of created or sort of encaptured that relationship between the two of those. And the thought process is that that line can move up or down. So as you're, this is, this is thinking more from a capacity perspective, right? So what your tissue what's can ca- what's, what's capacity? Yeah. Okay, good. So yeah, let, let's, let's define yeah. these terms. And I don't care about, I don't want an Oxford dictionary definition. I want your working operational definition of what you think capacity is and how that informs your practice. Yeah. So I typically teach this as a four quadrant capacity versus tolerance. And there's there's a lot of overlap between the two, but yeah, just as an operational, something that works more of a colloquial des- definition probably. Capacity is the limits structurally for the tissue or the system. Tolerance is how much of that limit you're willing to deal with. So if we think of this as somebody who's dealing with tendinopathy Capacity is probably much higher than tolerance, right? It's uncomfortable to run, but your likelihood of blowing out, let's say, Achilles tendon is not necessarily, in fact, it might be even lower, right? Because you're offloading it a little bit. That So that would be an example of capacity versus tolerance. And then we can think of this as four quadrants, upper right-hand quadrant, high capacity, high tolerance, cleared to train, push as hard as you want, bottom left-hand quadrant, low capacity, low tolerance. This is usually more of your post-operative where it's going to hurt, but it won't necessarily hurt before you also do damage. So think immediate post-op type repair. Anything that you're slinging, splinting, anything adding extra protection, usually in that. And then the other two is you can kind of think low capacity, high tolerance. Um, This is somebody who a lot of times um, you can think of the runner who tells you that, you know, it started started being a problem after mile one. And by 50 miles, I couldn't move anymore. And then they, you know, have a bone stress injury or something, right? They're somebody who's just able to push through or deal with it more. Or bottom right-hand quadrant, we're now dealing with someone whose capacity is much higher but their tolerance is low, whether it's their belief of what this is going to do to them or just the pain associated with it being um, not necessarily represented by that capacity aspect. So that's kind of how I view. I think it's hard to say one without the other because there's a perception. There's also local. So, you know, it goes down that whole rabbit hole. But that's my working definition for capacity and tolerance. So we're saying, are we kind of, can I, can I say that capacity is more of an objective uh, term and tolerance is more of a subjective, interpretive, individual to the patient or person kind of term? Would you dichotomize it like that or is it more of a continuum? I don't know. Since I mean, with most colloquial or most heuristics, they break down when you zoom in too far. So yeah, I would probably lean more towards a continuum because you can always point out examples where it's, well, this, what's this? Sure. It's more the idea behind this for me is to quickly orient yourself to the individual and it helps define and help you make best guesses when you start. So yeah, think of it almost as tolerance is your your ability to have an opinion on it. That might be a good way to think of it, right? If you have a bone stress injury, doesn't really matter what you think about it. We, that's something objective. Now, there's other things that maybe we can't image, so that's where it starts becoming a little theoretical. But yeah, the the more likely it is that your opinion on it is um, playing a role, the more I would 
bump it into that tolerance with the understanding that this is just a general heuristic to kind of orient your thinking when you're approaching uh, individuals. Cool. So I assume, and we might come back to this in a minute, but I just want to put it out there into the ether just in case I forget it so somebody can remind me, hopefully you, Scott, that so would, would psychosocial variables or factors influence the tolerance of a tissue or whatever a person or would it influence the capacity or both or neither i want to come back to that all right because i don't that's a question that we've got for later i don't want to totally derail your answer about the envelope of function so i'll shelve that for a moment let's go back let's put tolerance and capacity back into the envelope of function and i'm sorry to interrupt you there no no you're good so i again this is kind of my interpretation having you know it's been I forget when I first read about this, uh, but it's something that every time I revisited made more sense and started uh, bringing things together. But I, I think the envelope of function, as I understand it defined, was this idea of a zone where the you are above a dosage that is ineffective. So you, you're at a dosage that's sufficient to maintain, but not quite hitting a dosage that will cause um, damage. And that's kind of that zone. So I, f I find it beneficial if we're visualizing this as the place where it's okay for you to hang out with a lower likelihood, right? It's all probabilistic. We don't know, right? It's it's not fine lines that should all be drawn with a chalk held on the side. So it's these big thick lines. And then think of more of your bell-shaped or your probabilistic type distribution. This is that big hump in the middle, one standard deviation or whatever way where it's most likely that if you're doing these things with this tolerance and, or I'm sorry, with this uh, dosage and this frequency that you're probably going to be okay. And it's also probably enough to maintain whatever adaptations you have. So that, that's how I kind of conceptualize that, uh, that envelope idea. With detraining, with injury, or with, uh, in his case, patellofemoral pain, and uh, the, I think he takes more of a structural model. So let's say we're having some kind of um, issue going on with that kneecap, whether, and let's lump it together, whether it's tolerance or capacity, doesn't matter. We have a limitation in what we can do with that kneecap before we are stopped. That would be shifting that whole sort of spectrum or that area, if we think of it as just a drawing out what you can do, we're now limiting it. We've taken the kid who's allowed to ride his bike all around the neighborhood and told him he has to stay on the street, right? Or, and then he keeps getting irritated. Now you can't go outside of your uh, parents' eyesight, right? Now you got to stay in the yard. And that's, that's that. If we think of it as a narrative, it's a narrative of contraction, and then what we want, right, is that narrative of expansion moving upward and outward. This is now, okay, yeah, you know, you're, you've are you shown yourself responsible or whatever. You can ride your bike outside more. Same idea with as as things adapt, as things calm down, with, regardless of where that expansion is coming from, that would be shifting up and to the right. Um, now, what we do typically as therapists is utilize exercise or some form, some form of stressor in order to drive that shift, right? Because what we're looking for is that hormetic dosage that is sufficient to drive adaptation, but not so much that we uh, take from our recovery abilities or exacerbate the problem. And this is where I think hormesis really fits in well with this idea of, of that dosage and what we're looking for with it. Okay, good. So adaptation, you mentioned a couple of times there. So we're, we're applying a physical stress 
for example, let's say load, whatever that means as well. We'll stop. We'll, we won't define everything that we say. And then where our, our aim is to help the tissue adapt somehow. Now, what do, you, what do you mean by adapt? Do you mean build up structurally? Do you mean change? Do you mean increase strength? Do you mean heal? Do you mean like stop neurovascular infiltration for a tendinopathy? Do you mean, are you talking molecular level, cellular level? What do we mean by tissue adaptation here? And I assume the answer is going to be all of the above and including the central nervous system. But tell me, tell me what. Yeah. Yeah. So the, yes, the answer is any, any adaptation that your body is capable of where I, I don't draw the line at, oh, this adaptation is good. This adaptation is bad, or this is the adaptation that we do where I think the line should be drawn is our, our confidence, right? That this adaptation matters for the thing that we are addressing. And most of the time, our confidence is way higher than it should be. I think a good way to think of probability is that it is not something inherent to the situation. It is specific to our lack of knowledge. So probability is relative to how much or how little we know about the situation. The reason why we have to make a guess is because we're uncertain. If you flip a coin and it's flipped and I put it over and I'm holding it on my wrist and I say heads or tails, your choice has nothing to do. There's no probabilistic aspect about what the coin is. You just are not aware of it. And that's most of, I think, where this stuff comes from. So all of those things, sure, yeah, maybe it could be any of those. We're trying to drive adaptation in the things that we have the highest likelihood or highest probability of making a difference. Um, but I would I would tease that out. And this is where that capacity versus tolerance, I think, uh, adds to the framework. Because tolerance, if we're, if we're viewing, think of something like graded exposure, it's insufficient to probably drive adaptation in the things that we typically think of, right? Your five domains of fitness or whatever it is. But we do know that graded exposure can have some beneficial aspects for um, our, our ability to tolerate and hence the term tolerance. So this is where I'll look at the idea of minimum effective dose, maximum tolerated dose specific to the adaptation that you care about. So it may be that we have someone with very, very severe discomfort, and you're just doing something like going through a motion, right? You're just, you're just going, let's say we're doing a deadlift with just body weight. You're just doing a hinge pattern. And this is someone who five weeks ago was deadlifting know, 300 kilos, whatever, right? We're just making up a story here. It's unlikely that at that point, they have detrained to the point where them doing the hinge pattern or practice is actually changing uh, some sort of muscular hypertrophy or adaptation in the tendon or the bone or the ligament. So the minimum effective dosage for hypertrophy is probably not being met, but minimum effective dosage for some sort of decreased sensitization or for their ability to tolerate that movement that is being met. And so that's where tolerance versus capacity helps me to dial in on, all right, which one am I trying to address? And then I know my entry point. If I'm trying to deal with tolerance, I don't need to hit some threshold that would drive hypertrophy because that's not my goal. And so that's where we we make our best estimate of the thing that we think matters. And then we make our best estimate of the threshold of that minimum effective dosage. And we might start somewhere below that to ease into it, right? If we're trying to be extra cautious, or we might start above it if we think they can tolerate, right? And we'll mess up. And now and then we, uh, we're like, oh, well, that was too much. 
Yeah, that's why we have feedback loops, right? If you're not being informed by the results, probably shouldn't be uh, taking these process, right? This is where I typically look at the OODA loop within this, uh, the idea of we observe, orient, decide, act, right? And as we act, we need to observe because our actions drive things. So information is created by our actions. That information should allow us to reorient. And so now we have a better guess. Every time we do something, we have more information. That increase in information should allow us to orient ourselves to that envelope of function. So that's kind of how I view our clinical thought process around this envelope is we are trying to decide what is my goal? I don't know if it's accurate or not, but it's my job to make a best guess. And then as I start taking a stab at it, the feedback that's coming from it will help me know whether or not my estimation was a good one or eh, maybe the probability starts dropping when we start seeing other outcomes come. So that makes sense. It's kind of there's a lot of different models. I don't think you could think of envelope of function just as this. All right. Now we're doing the envelope of function. There's uh, John Boyd talks about, so he's the one who created the OODA loop. And he talks about, think of like a cork board and you have sticky notes all over it. And each of those sticky notes is a model or a theory or something. None of them are fully accurate. And we know that. But as new information comes in, we're trying to orient that new information to, all right, how does this fit in this model? All right. So if it's there, how does that reorient now my view of this situation? And uh, looking at the same construct with multiple angles helps us to triangulate a little better since none of them are actually that precise. So it sounds like Reverend Bayes has entered the chat. This sounds like a Bayesian <laughs> approach, Scott. Would that be would that be fair to say if we want to put a label to it where you're where you're making a guess based on incomplete information, which is what clinicians do all around the world every single day. You're making a guess, you're doing something and then you modify, adapt, change what you're doing in, in alignment with feedback or new information coming to you. So is this a Bayesian type approach? Yeah, I, mean, I would think, I think the Bayesian idea just encapsulates an idea that's fundamental to interacting with uncertainty, right? This is the same as perception action coupling on a field. You're moving up the field, the defender moves as he moves. You need to move in order to perceive, you need to perceive in order to move as the defender moves new affordances are created for you as you start taking advantage of them you are now changing the landscape and the defender will also move it's that constant interaction same thing with the conversation saying this is just interacting with independent agents results in a need for a feedback loop type system and i think what the bayesian idea really adds value to is helping us conceptualize that our knowledge is incomplete this is not a matter of right wrong this is not a dichotomous uh, dichotomous type approach to it it's a best guess. By understanding that it is a best guess, we're freeing ourselves to update our probability. And I think that's where Bayes, you don't even need to know the formula, but the idea of what a Bayesian process is helps us to be better thinkers would be, yeah. I, so yes, Bayes, but also it's not this, oh, this is the one way. It's, I think it's so fundamental to how, like, this is how humans work within uncertainty. And even without communication, it's, it's everything we do when you have independent agents interacting, this is where emergence, complexity, all that sort of stuff comes from. If you're an independent agent, you have the ability to affect things and even small, simple rules like, you know, birds flying in flight or something uh, and seeing those flocks just transform. It's all just basic small rules, but they're independent. They can make a decision and their decision results in a change in the outcome, which then changes their decision. And that's how you get those really cool big flocks of birds flying around. Yeah. Yeah. No, complexity and emergence and uh, 
fascinating subjects. I've had a few people on the show uh, talking about that stuff and I'm, I'm trying to get a few more people on actually from the Santa Fe Institute over uh, oh, in your neck cool. of the woods. And yeah, uh, yeah it, it could be interesting. I want to talk about a bunch of different things, um, in, even in economics where complexity and all this sort of stuff is, is commonplace as well. But let's, let's stick to the human body where you and I are far more comfortable, <laughs> I imagine. Um, just a note on Reverend Bayes, actually, before we go too far. What a fascinating character, like just who, who just, you know, did mathematics in his spare time uh, whilst, whilst being a, a reverend. It's just those, those, those people a few hundred years ago, they seem like, I don't know, we just don't have them anymore. And I don't, or maybe that's just because we have a lot more, we've made a lot of discoveries um, and there's not, yeah, the you know, limits of, with the the limits of knowledge. Taken. Yes. And not, not that we, I mean, looking back, some of the most brilliant people of all time. Absolutely. However, your ability to know to the limits of knowledge allowed you to have people who were creating massive discoveries in multiple domains, which is, it's, I'm sure they would be very, very happy to live in today's world and have the advantage of not having to discover all the stuff that all of us do. So yeah, it's a dude was awesome. Laplace, like it's, it's a fascinating, um, Thing. There's a great book on the history of uh, Bayes that I am blanking on the name right now, but I will uh, get it out for you and you can put it in the notes. But not only there, there is one about uh, just Bayes, but there's a, one of Bayesian thinking uh, that it'll come to me. We'll move on and come back to it when I remember. <laughs> Getting old, Scott, that memory's going. Um, Bay- uh, Bayes it's been is gone. making Bernoulli's a- fallacy. Bernoulli's fallacy. That's Bernoulli's it. fallacy. Yeah. Bernoulli's fallacy. Yeah. Yes. Ah, phenomenal. It. Oh, so much. Cool. Yeah. It's um, Bayes is making a big comeback, isn't he, with this whole Bayesian inference? Well, it's not, it's been around again for many, many centuries, actually. But predictive processing, you go on Twitter and you can't, you can't really, you see these two camps, you see pain is a perception, pain is a sensation. One camp loves a predictive processing camp, one, one camp loves uh, Cartesian uh, interpretations of pain. Anyway, that's, that's again, a, a debate, <laughs> debate for, debate yeah. for another day. So, another day. So, I want to I want to move on. I just want to ask a question, actually, and this might be a simple answer. So, is there a difference? And you've alluded to it. Is there a difference between the envelope of function and Muller's um, physical stress theory, or are they correlate, parallel, adjunctive? I, I think they're explaining similar ideas. I think the physical stress goes through a much it goes much deeper into the process of the adaptations that's occurring. So physical stress theory, you can look at it as teeing up for mechanotransduction, for a specific adaptation to impose demand, for all of those things. Whereas the envelope of function, I think, is more of a global model that you, you can plug the physical stress theory into. And I think it's a little more elegant in its simplicity. But if you combine the two, kind of gets you where you're trying to go. But it it should be that as we go along and as we understand more, we're building on this, right? So just because we had this model 20 years or whatever ago, doesn't mean that we can't refine it, right? As new information comes in. So as we start learning, kind of like Bannister's model, I think I, I see similarities between the two 
uh, or we think fitness fatigue, right? Just the idea of these two things interacting together. What is fitness? What is fatigue? How does fatigue uh, modify the fitness that you were capable of expressing at this time point, right? It, and then it's gone off and there's all sorts of other things that have uh, come out of it. But fundamentally, a lot of it comes down to this idea of uh, dosage versus repetitions. And Brent Edwards has a phenomenal paper. I think it was 2018, 2019 uh, that he had uh, did with a few colleagues looking at uh, just the increases in uh, intensity versus the total repetitions to failure for uh, various biological tissues. And you see mass, it's an exponential increase as you increase the intensity or the load or basically stress and strain right on the, on the area, the cycles that you can tolerate drop in an exponential manner. It's not a linear type thing. So as we start thinking of this, the top left-hand side of this envelope of function is probably a place where we need to be much more careful. We need to cycle through our feedback loop much more rapidly because it's a lot easier to have a traumatic injury there than it is bottom right-hand corner just by function of the fact that we live in a temporal world it takes you a while to accumulate all those repetitions. And usually you're starting like, oh, hey, something's not feeling good, right? You don't typically get catastrophic injuries in the bottom right-hand side of the envelope function like you do in the top left-hand. So, so high left our, being our, a high load, low tolerance? Uh, so it would be, think it, so in the terminology of the envelope of function, it would be high load, low repetition. So this is jumping out of the two-story building. Gotcha. And I typically look at this as the benefit for clinicians from a reasoning process is identify where in this framework the thing that you're trying to get back to goes. And if it's towards the left and high, you probably want to take a much more gradual approach to it because you don't get many chances to do it right. As opposed to so someone getting back to skiing downhill, right? Or some, uh, the high G or something like that, that would be, you're going to build up to it a little bit more. Whereas maybe jogging, you can start jogging early. Return to running involves running, right? Return to um, high jump might take you a little bit of other jumps before you're actually getting to that high jump. So think of this in that sense, return to, we do a long toss program to get back to pitching, but we don't necessarily do a Sometimes you can do a walk, but most return to run programs involve some kind of a shuffling run, right? When you start, there's, there, sure, you can do it. Most of the time, by the point, you know, if we're thinking our ACLs or something like that, they've walked a lot just as part of daily activity. So that's, that's kind of where I see the benefit of this is where is the activity you care about? And then it helps you orient and anchor your process and knowing how vigorous and how quickly you need to close those feedback loops in order to know if things are going wrong or not. Good. Okay. So, so where does human psychology fit into the envelope of function? Does it, does it consider higher sort of order phenomena or is it tissue based or tissue obsessed? Where do psychological factors come into play here? I don't. So my interpretation of this would be that psychological factors come into play in how they influence what you're doing your willingness to do it, your tendency to do it, right? All those sort of things. But a model, you know, this is not the um, universal model that explains all things. And I think it starts breaking down when we try and force other things into it. So earlier you had asked that question about, well, you know, which is it? 
100% both probably, right? Without psychological factors, there's probably no movement. There's probably no uh, exploration of these things. But this model is not trying to explain it. Those are off to the left somewhere as you know, causal factors, but not specifically things. We're assuming this model, for me anyway, we've already determined that something physical is what we care about and that there is possibility for adaptation. So our goals are physical. Right. We have whatever the case may be. We're trying to get the tendon to adapt. We're trying to increase strength. We're trying to uh, bone stress injury is a great example of sure. Psychological factors are going to play a huge role in all sorts of things. However, if we're just zooming in on can the bone tolerate return to running, that is a little bit more. Now, can the human tolerate running? I think is a different question. And that's when we zoom out. I don't know that the envelope of function gives us as much information on there. And I'm, I'm perfectly okay with that, right? I, I forget who it was that said the quote, but uh, why isn't it enough to enjoy the, and I'm going to butcher this, but why, is, why can't it be enough to enjoy the beauty of the flower garden without believing that fairies came along to create it or, you know, something along that line. Like some, some of these heuristics, we know that there's limitations. We use them where they work and where they go crazy at the other end. It's kind of like any statistical model. It, it explains, right, that linear model explains the things within the spectrum. But if you go out, it starts getting crazy on both ends. Um, same idea here to me. Yeah, agree. <clears throat> I, I, but I do think it is important to know that what you're using is limited. You know, and not yes. not assume that we can extrapolate forever and a day. This is a perfect model. Everybody who comes into my practice will be somewhere within this envelope of function, and they might be. But the the more we deal with the higher order phenomena in human existence, the the messier it will be. And I'm, and that's okay. It's not. I'm not trying to detract from the envelope of function, but it's it's very important to know the limitations of, of the model you're using. A hundred percent. And that goes back to that idea of the cork board with the variety of models, because where one model does not work well, you should have other models that are picking up that aspect. Mm -hmm. And then what I'd ask you is if it doesn't fit onto envelope of function, is that where we might be thinking of referring to someone else, right? What, where does our domain stop, right? The same exactly like models don't explain everything. Our profession does not treat, right? There are other professions that do a much better job at a lot of things that we don't. So I think, yes, we need to know the limitations of our model. We also need to know the limitations of what we do. You're, you are best at your craft when you don't do the things that you're not good at. Like I always tell people, just because you've seen someone else do a bad job doesn't mean you need to do a bad job at it too, right? Yeah. You go to your mechanic and he tells you, oh yeah, don't get this person to fix your AC at your house. He doesn't say, I'll come over and do it for you. He says, let me refer you this guy who does a great job or this woman who will do a really good job at that. And that's, I guess, for me, the, the, the corollary to that. Yes, know the limitations of your model, but also know your limitations. Yeah, that's a good point. So if you're if you're thinking that this particular patient evades the envelope of function, then possibly that patient's not right to be seen by a physiotherapist, at least primarily in terms of uh, treating the pain presentation or injury presentation or whatever it might be. So that's that's a really good point. And it, and I'll just come back too. So even though even though there might be some psychological variables at play, even if you just implement an intervention to try and 
cause some tissue adaptation, for example, then indirectly you're probably going to be affecting other psychological variables as well. And this is when we start talking about causal mechanisms and what's actually changing when you institute an intervention. Just because we give resistance exercise to a particular person with a particular pain presentation doesn't mean that the causal mechanisms underpinning that person's recovery is just due to tissue changes. So you can have a unidimensional intervention resistance exercise, and that has this plethora of causal mechanisms underpinning it. Absolutely. With the caveat that, you know, if if we're doing it to target things that are not within our domain, probably a good time to pull in someone else that does it. So if you have a patient who you're like, well, I don't know that this is going to be that helpful, but let's do it anyway. Yeah, you know, maybe talk to like, that's usually where I'm saying, hey, have you considered talking to the psychologist or something like that? Going back to that talk about likelihood or probability, that is a patient where I am saying the likelihood of changes in tissue being relevant to the thing that you come in and complain to me about or told me about today is relatively low. And that's when it comes to informed consent. That's what we're talking about is, listen, I'm not sure that this is beneficial. I can tell you that doing these things will result in changes here because that's just how biology tends to work. And I'm relatively confident. Yes, yes. I'm relatively confident that I'm good at that aspect. But I don't know if it actually matters for the thing that you care about. So you tell me, do you want to, you know, you want to give it, and that's where I'm waiting that likelihood of my intervention. I'm much more confident with a broken bone or post-op that what I'm doing matters for that than someone who comes in with, you know, chronic history of pain or whatever else it may be. So just because the intervention does a lot of things doesn't mean that you are appropriate to try and target those things that it does. Uh, This goes to the exercise question of, right, um, I'm a personal trainer and I'm using a squat or I'm a therapist and I'm using a squat. You're both using the same movement, but your intentions, your goals, your plans are very different based off of your scope, your expertise, your knowledge. So yeah, you're doing the same movement. You may even be getting hypertrophy with both of them as the goal, but there's a different reason why you're pursuing that. And so I think just some clarity and nuance in there's a lot of great things that happen when you exercise is probably a good idea. Does not mean that it makes us a psychologist, right? Just because there's some good higher order constructs that come from that. There's great research showing depression is probably affected by exercise. I don't prescribe exercise for depression. That's not what I do. Just like a personal trainer doesn't necessarily prescribe exercise to heal or to address uh, injury, something like that, right? Good. Absolutely good. Scope of practice, Scott. Very important. So I want to ask, has the envelope of function been subjected to any scientific inquiry or can it? Does it evade scientific investigation? I'm a big fan of Karl Popper and a huge part of Popper's work is if, if, if a theory isn't able to be tested, it's not scientific. And I don't believe that applies to the letter of the law. There's huge criticisms on that in the field of philosophy of science. But I just want your opinion on that. Or is it just a useful way of looking at clinical practice? And then you test things within the the theory itself. So I'll, I'll hand that over to you. Complicated question. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to see Popper's falsification idea as probably beneficial at the time, but hopefully not I, you know, every everyone in science knows Popper, and that's the extent of the philosophy of science that really uh, goes to. So, uh, you know, falsification, sure, the demarcation, that these are all big things. But Bayes 
Popper to me is much more like a, a null hypothesis uh, type test of yes, no. And then if it's no, we go right back to the beginning and start all over again. Bayes would say that as we get new information, we get better at our initial guess. And so that that's where I and that's a whole other conversation. But I do I do take a little bit of issue with if you can't falsify it, that means it's useless. What I think a model like this does is it allows us to make predictions which can be tested. But this model tends to have emerged from just more underlying biological, like specific adaptation to impose demand, right? We, we know this is a relatively bedrock type thing of any sort. Again, hormesis, that idea of a dosage that creates positive adaptation of a stressor that would be toxic at higher dosage, right? So you get that hormetic curve. That's really what, to me, this is doing is it's just creating a framework for the things that we have looked at in isolation. I don't I don't know how you would like test this. Right. I, I you know, from a thought experience, jump off of a five story building once or go run 100 miles. Both of them will probably lead to an injury. So at the extremes, we we get there. Now, where it goes from the extreme to, again, it's a model. It's not supposed to be clear, right? Uh, maybe it is fuzzy as, as we zoom in. At the, like the joke, I don't know if you're familiar with the Yeti or the um, right, uh, the um, Bigfoot here. Uh, all of yes, the, yes, yes. All, yeah, so all of the pictures are fuzzy. And uh, Mitch Hedberg, the comedian, he had a great joke that he said, what if what if Bigfoot is fuzzy, right? The problem isn't that photographers aren't taking a good picture. It's that he is fuzzy. And I, I think <laughs> of these models as these models, it's not that our cameras or our pictures are bad of it. It's that these models are fuzzy. And if you keep zooming in, it'll keep getting fuzzier because it's not supposed to get us that clarity in that thing. If we're trying to get that specific, we need to have a much more specific hypothesis, a much more specific statement, which this envelope of function can help us start with but would not be the place that we test it. That's, that's my opinion on it. Yeah, I'm no, just always uh, happy um, to get a Mitch Hedberg quote in. <laughs> you're doing well with the quotes, actually. I think yeah. you're, you've had at least three, Scott, so you're doing well. You're, you're, the record is five, I believe, so yeah, you're nearly there. Oh, I can. Um, <laughs> no original thoughts here, right? None. It's just nothing all new, quotes. Nothing new under the sun, Scott. Um, yeah, so going back to pop, like, I mean, you're right. Like, there are, there, the science of consciousness is technically untestable at this point even the science of pain is untestable because that is a subjective experience and there are there are aspects within quantum mechanics the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics mm -hmm. is untestable at this point in time as far as i'm aware i think we are only have access to one universe so there is a so it does break down and it can break down but i think it is a nice the demarcation principle is a a really good quick way of orienting yourself to some theory that you hear and go that's bullshit or that might have some that might have some validity or that might help in some respects it is a good way of spotting bullshit in my opinion it's yeah it's a, it's a very good way of spotting things that you should not be very confident about right if it's untestable then you know just like with everything else the higgs boson was amazing because of the fact that we found something that had been predicted by a theory for a while. Now, if we had not found it, we don't immediately discard the theory. It may just be that we still aren't at the place where we can ask that question, but our confidence, this is where Bayes comes back in, our confidence will go up and down based off of it, as opposed to we don't just, um, to use the nomenclature of our time, we don't just eat that idea out there and start with a whole new one, right? We're now, all right, hey, you know what? Let's. This has explained a lot of things. It did not explain this. What's going on here? 
half the time it's us messing up the testing, right? Mm. When 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 the uh, lab, I forget which one it was, got found faster than light travel, their first thing wasn't saying, hey, all of these theories about light being the limit of uh, speed uh, in our universe is wrong. No, it was, can you check our, we, we think we did something wrong, right? And I think that's where this idea is. It's not, you, falsification is a good idea, but sometimes the people who are trying to falsify it are more, <laughs> you, it's just keeps going down right it's turtles all the no, way down exactly and i think sure I, what we're doing. I think i think i think popper does accept that and and then lakatosh has improved upon popper and thomas kuhn says something similar and then fire Arbin as well where well if something's wrong or something has been falsified or the test doesn't match the prediction where could it have gone wrong and then you look at the experiment then you look at the scientists involved and if it's repeatedly falsified because nothing's really falsified after one experiment and most people Correct. accept this and this is the whole point of Kuhn's paradigm where you kind of you're still just a working scientist that that prediction or that that test didn't match that prediction what happened let's go back and have a look if it keeps happening and this is why I am, am confident speaking definitively about the concept of shoulder impingement and perhaps why we should abandon it because we've got so much data now that really leaves that diagnosis is it's you can't in good faith Give that diagnosis, in my opinion. So once once evidence starts accumulating to that extent repeatedly mm-hmm. across labs, across countries, across people, then you have to look at it. But we're still not at a probability of one. We might be 0.99. Will, will we ever? Yep, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's, again, going, you know, it, everything is probabilistic. No, we will never, we should never be one. And that's the, the big problem with a lot of this stuff is this, instead of uh, Isaac Asimov's paper about uh, being less wrong, a lot of times I think we're just wrong differently. So we're just as confident about another theory that has plenty of flaws, and it only explained the one thing that we became aware of might not be right. And now we've climbed a new hill that's just in the same vicinity as the old hill. We planted a new flag, and now we're ready to go through the same old process all over again, whereas what we should be doing is increasing and decreasing our confidence in a variety of things and just being better at understanding what we don't know and Mm -hmm. still treating the patient with the understanding that most of what we do is hypothetical and you know, it's a lot of times I had a patient once who came in and had hurt his back after falling and uh, saw him. Next time I see him, he's like, oh, I'm all better. I'm like, yeah, I nailed that. He's like, no, actually, uh, on my way home from the last one, I tripped and fell at the same spot that I did before. And when I landed, stood up, my back was all better. Great. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, all right. Yeah. That, that's clinical practice. Sometimes you just yes. smile and shrug. I'm with you. I've got I've got innumerable instances of the, of the exact same, but you've just got to, you've got to be okay with that. You've got to be you've got to be comfortable in the grey, comfortable with uncertainty, don't you? And you are right. It's all it's all it's all some sort of dance with probabilities and confidence. And as long as you're doing things that are like biologically plausible and not harmful. And you have feedback that actually is telling you about what's going on. The worst thing that can happen is seeing the world as you believe it exists instead of how it does. Um, I, and I don't know who said this quote either, but the it's it, it's not the things that you know. Uh, it's not the things you don't know that get you. It's the things you know for sure that just ain't so. That's the the worst problem is when we that's, think uh, we know Twain. something. It's Mark Twain. Twain? I, I believe that it was attributed to Twain, but... <laughs> Then it wasn't him actually, and I don't remember who they say actually said it first. So that's why I'm saying I, I don't remember who said it. But 
the analogy I use is the idea of going into a, your bedroom, the lights off. You've lived there for a while. You know where things are. You walk in confidently and move around the room. What you didn't know is that your partner rearranged the furniture before you went in. Your confidence was very high, that you knew what was going on. The reality was things change. Now, if before you went into the room, the part, your partner said, hey, I rearranged the furniture, you have no difference in actual knowledge of where things are, but you approach it very differently. It, it goes from a act-react type thing, right? So if we think of the Kinevin framework of the four different domains of how we approach different situations, we go from that sort of, we know the standard process, we go in, we turn left after three steps, right? And then all of a sudden, boom, you run into something. What we do is we approach the room with the idea of we probe, and then we change, and then we act, right? And that's that's the fundamental, I think, difference to all of this is if we have models that are helping us to make decisions, and if we are very, very clear on what our feedback is actually telling us, because this is where applied kinesiology, all these things that tell us the thing that we want to see. Well, if your test isn't actually standing on a scale, you believe you're measuring your weight. But if you're wearing all your clothes and you have a backpack on, the scale is telling you how much mass is on it. It's not telling you how much you weigh. And if this is why someone can sneak their toe in behind you and touch the scale and you think, oh, I gained five pounds or two kilos or whatever, you know, your unit measures. That's because we think we're measuring our weight when we stand on the scale. The scale is measuring the amount of force, right? The amount of mass placed on it with this constant of gravity. That's the problem we face in the clinic is we believe that what we're doing is measuring the thing. But what we're actually measuring, so dynamometry being a classic example of you think you're measuring knee extension torque. What you're actually measuring is how much force it takes to push you over or how much force it takes to lift their butt up off of the plinth or how much tolerance they have to pain pressure at that. There's so many other things that can be the lymphatic on this. That's the issue is be aware. And just as much as we have to be uncertain about the bigger things, we also need to be uncertain about the feedback that we are basing our updated perceptions on. So that's my rant. It's a beautiful rant, Scott. I think, honestly, I think that's a, a very nice place to wrap up. We've had a enjoyable, uh, engaging, meandering conversation. Four, four quotes maybe in the end, Scott. So you've fallen one short. Have to go back I think there's more than that. I'm going to hold myself to that. If not, I'll just say uh, the snozberries take like snozberries, which is uh, <laughs> another quote. So there we go. Five. Good. I love it. It's been it's been um, really good fun. I've been wanting to chat for you for a long time. We've had this in the books for a bit, um, but we finally we finally made it uh, happen. So thank you very much for coming on. Uh, where can everybody? find you scott where are you active on the socials and what's your website yeah so uh the website is physiopraxis.co and the twitter is at s-c-o-t-m-o-r-r-s-n twitter is really where i do most interaction as just me um uh, instagram is more of like i have physiopraxis so it's physio underscore praxis uh on instagram and that's more information stuff uh, so my website also has just a ton of like free information that I put up there and curate. If you are a USPT, um, I have to give a plug for the um, Sports Academy. So I'm the uh, chair of the Sports Performance Special Interest Group, and we do a ton of stuff on there. So I'm also on there a lot, but that is more uh, within the US. And you and you have a course, uh, Sloptimal Loading, correct? 
I do. Yes. Uh, sloptimal loading. It's from Ting. Use the term sloptimal and I loved it because right, exercise prescription, horseshoes and hand grenades are three things where close enough is good. And you don't need to be right. And I've heard many, many good things about uh, your course, Scott. So do you kind of cover similar things within your, not similar things, obviously, um, would you tell me what you cover in your course vaguely? Sorry to put you on the spot. Yeah, no, no, no problem. Um, like some of the ideas of tolerance versus capacity, I do teach this based off of the envelope of function, but sloptimal being the idea of exercise prescription is based off of making a best guess, interacting, and then seeing what happens. And really the course is more about critical thinking. It is a higher order course. I do get students who come and enjoy it. Um, typically a lot more work for students or new grads and the ones who have come are ones who are really investing and putting time in it. Um, but yeah, it's it's the course that I find enjoyable to teach. Uh, so definitely requires a lot of thinking on my part, as well as everyone involved. It's really a lot of question and answer. So I, I teach it currently um, online as well. Uh, so I, I post up whenever stuff comes. But yes, yeah, the idea is optimal. It's it doesn't have to be optimal, right? We have the whole idea of optimal loading. But if you once you're good enough, you're wasting time if you're not doing something. So that's really just the process of thinking, and then exercise prescription uh, framework around that testing and uh, goal setting, and kind of that process of how how do we get from here to there in a way that doesn't overwhelm our thought process, right? That doesn't just paralyze us when we have 15 patients in the next three hours and have to do something with each one. So a lot more heuristics and stuff like that. I love it. And if it's anything like our discussion today, I highly recommend checking that out over at uh, Scott's website. So Scott, thank you very much for joining me, my friend, and uh, have fun. I don't know. Is it is it evening over there in Florida? Yeah, I think it's like uh, 940. But bedtime is like whenever I can't continue doing things. And then I hate myself in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you don't have kids yet? I've got a, I've got a little baby. No, and, no. Uh, yeah, I slide into no, bed at 8 p.m. dead. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, no kids. So. Okay. You, you, you're not lucky. Anyway, we won't have a good conversation. All right, Scott. <laughs> take take care of yourself, question. my friend. All right, mate. Catch yeah, you. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode.